Welcome to Desert City Church's podcast. Thanks for listening in. What you are about to hear is a sermon given live at one of our Sunday gatherings. We ask that you would take a moment and reflect on the context in which this message was given. We are a new church serving in neighborhoods on the edge of North Phoenix and Scottsdale, Arizona. Here we are seeking to practice the way of Jesus together, joining God in His renewing work. Our sermons are ongoing conversations around a sacred text or scripture in which we find the story of Jesus. We are not perfect people, and we do not have all of the answers. We believe these teachings are formational to our lives as we seek to become more like Christ and love people in these neighborhoods. We hope they inspire you to love God and others more. If we can serve you in any way or answer any questions about our community, please don't hesitate to ask. You can find out more information at DesertCityChurch.com. I have a friend uh, named Johnny Mitchell, and uh, some of his siblings are here today. Uh, Got to know Johnny a few years back, became a Christian maybe five years ago or so. Um, Really getting serious about his faith, was baptized and uh, started working at a church, and so I've been working with him before on staff, and and, uh, he's part of our community, and great guy. Uh, Love having theological conversations with Johnny, and... uh, uh, he'll be reading through scripture, and, and he'll ask me a question about it, and then we just start a dialogue. Uh, it's really interesting. This week, he texted me and said, I have a, a question. I, I'm reading the story about Jesus, and he, and he heals this woman. This woman reaches out, and she touches the hem of his garment, and, and she's miraculously healed. And then Jesus turns around, and he asks a question, who touched me? And Johnny's question was, but doesn't Jesus know everything? I mean, doesn't Jesus just, wouldn't he just know who touched him? And why does Jesus ask this question? And led to this discussion on, Jesus asks a lot of questions. He asks many different things of many people. And why does he do this if he's, Jesus is God and he, he knows everything? And so we started this discussion on why Jesus would ask questions. And as we head towards Easter and we look at the life of Jesus, oftentimes what we do is we come to the scripture and we come to Jesus looking for answers. But as you read through the Gospels, what you find is that Jesus has questions for us. In fact, if you would read all four of the Gospels, you find that Jesus asks 307 questions of people. In four books, that's a lot of questions. That's like my daughter Sophia, a lot of questions, right? He asked 307 questions. And in fact, there's 183 questions that are asked of Jesus. And of those 183 questions that are asked of him, he only responds directly to like just under 10 of them. And what we find is that Jesus often will will tell a story or he'll he'll respond with a question. And you kind of wonder like, what's going on there? Why is it that Jesus is the one that's always asking questions and why is it that he's not directly responding when people ask him direct questions? Jesus, we have to remember, is a Jewish rabbi. He's a carpenter, but he's a rabbi. He's, uh, he has mastery of the Old Testament and of the law. And it was a very uh, rabbinical way of entering into dialogue with people to ask good questions. So we oftentimes will answer a question with a question. For the rabbis, this was how uh, a deeper understanding of the text would come about. There was a wrestling with it. Questions are good. What we find is 
as we start to engage the questions that Jesus asked, we find he asks questions because questions cause us to wrestle and think. There's a learning process as we ask questions. There's a learning process as we wrestle with a question. Questions also draw us into relationship. When we come to, like for, for Johnny and I, he knows he can text me a question and we have this ongoing conversation about scripture. We have a great relationship where we can wrestle with things. There's intimacy that comes from asking questions. Questions also lead uh, to this sense of power coming from uh, coming to the answer on our own. We take ownership when we, we wrestle with something, and then as we start to discover the answer, there's like an ownership that comes as we answer that question. And questions also don't let us run away from a problem, but we have to deal with it and wrestle with it. And as we wrestle with questions, there's growth that comes in our life. So we learn there's intimacy, there's ownership, and there's growth. Uh, the old pastor and author, Tony Campolo, tells a story about this way that the Jewish rabbis would enter dialogue with others. And he tells the story of uh, an art dealer, an artist who owns uh, his own gallery, who would sell, uh, sell canvases. And uh, one day there was a, a man that came in to purchase art from this artist, and he was looking around the gallery, and he saw all of these just great works of art. And he, uh, he said, I, what, he talked to the artist, he said, what is your favorite what is your favorite canvas that you've painted? And the artist said, I, oh, I, I can't answer that. There's, there's no way. I, I love so many of them. And the man said, no, there's got to be one. You have to t- which one do you love the most? Because that's the one I want to purchase. And the artist said, no, you don't understand. I, there is no like, favorite. I love all of them. And the man couldn't get it. And he said, no, you don't understand. I want to purchase. I'll pay whatever. I want to purchase your favorite piece of art. It's because I know this will be your masterpiece. And finally, the artist said to the man, do you have any children? And the man said, yeah, yeah, I've got like three, three children. And the artist said, well, which one of those children do you love the most? And then the man realized he had his answer. He said, well, I, I love them all in different ways. And the artist said, so is the same with my paintings. There was this question that the artist asked that brought this deeper understanding. And Tony Campolo says, that is rabbinic. That is the art of the Jewish rabbi asking a question that brings about a deeper understanding of the question. And as we head towards Easter, what we're going to do is just look through some of these questions that Jesus asks us that I think have a way of just getting inside of us, that have a way of making us wrestle with the reality of how the world is, wrestle with our convictions, wrestle with what we believe, And today we start with this question. And I think that this question that Jesus asked where he says, who do you say that I am? This question stands at the center of our faith. It's at the heart of following Jesus. Who do you say that I am? For Peter, he has a response. To kind of understand how we get to this response and what it means, I just kind of want to unpack the story and when you look at the story, I want to break it down into three pieces. The first is that the location of where the story takes place, and then kind of the opinions of people about Jesus, and finally, Jesus's, Peter's response to Jesus. So when we look in the story, verse 27 says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the village around Caesarea Philippi. This is an interesting detail because Caesarea Philippi is kind of 
outside of Jesus's normal stomping grounds. Caesarea Philippi is far north. It's north of Galilee. It's north of the Decapolis. It's outside of uh, the, the jurisdiction of Herod, who we're going to talk about in the next few weeks. It's actually ruled by this other puppet king called Philip. And uh, in, in usually, Orthodox Jewish men will not travel to Caesarea Philippi. This is a place where you don't, you don't really go if you're Jewish. Caesarea Philippi has this history of being the center for pagan religion. And so it's been uh, well known that a lot of religions originated in this place, Caesarea Philippi. And so outside of Caesarea Philippi, is there's, there's this hill with a cave that's in the hill. And the legend has it that this Greek god named Pan, not Peter Pan, but Pan, uh, who looks a little bit like uh, Mr. Tumnus from the Chronicles of Narnia. He's this half-goat, half-man creature. Uh, originated from this cave. And he came out of this cave, and Pan was the god of nature. And so they, they set up worship towards this god of nature that came from Caesarea Philippi. Don't Google it. It's, you don't want to. But there was this pagan worship of, of Pan, and in this cave, this cave was called uh, the Gates of Hades. Something else in the life of Jesus happens at this cave. And because of this worship of the nature god, uh, Caesarea Philippi was a pretty wild place. The other thing is, Philip, who is the puppet king of Rome, who kind of rules over Caesarea Philippi, when he gets there, he understands that this city is a center for pagan religion. And being loyal to Julius Caesar, being loyal to Rome, he establishes this magnificent white marble palace at Caesarea Philippi that claims that Julius Caesar is the god of the universe. So there's all sorts of religious implications going on in this location. So the fact that Jesus goes to Caesarea Philippi with his disciples is interesting. And as Jesus goes there, it's at this place, the center for pagan world religions, that, G- that Peter has this confession of who Jesus is. Sometimes God reveals himself to us in some strange places. But that's not the point of the story. What's happening here is, is as we look at the life of Jesus and we start to understand what God is doing in this world through Jesus, we find that Jesus is this critique of all religion. And if we think about what religion is, uh, all religions, it's this idea of, if I could just live a certain way, my life, if I could just order things a certain way, if I could just have good karma, I can, I can have good things happen to me. And someday I can get to heaven, I can work my way to heaven, or someday I can, I can appease the gods and, and they'll work in my favor. And religion is this quest for heaven. And there's this striving that comes that we find in all sorts of religions. And it's at this place where these pagan religions happen that Jesus has this conversation with Peter. I remember when I was in college, I was uh, in uh, college, I was at a Bible school in Indiana, and uh, I was flying back to school. And I had a man on my plane and, um, who, uh, who was Hindu. And uh, we started this conversation. He found out that I was a, a, a Bible major and a religion student. And we started this conversation. And he was one of the kindest men, just 
unbelievably kind and humble. And we started this discussion on both of our religions. And uh, he's telling me about Hinduism, and I'm telling him about Christianity. And, and then he goes into this whole, the whole conversation that, that Gandhi, you know, there's this, he says, all religion is, is trying to explain who God is. And, and he says, think of, think of like, like God is this elephant, right? And, and one religion, one religion can touch uh, the trunk of the elephant, and it would say that uh, it feels like a, like a hose. And one person would, would touch the, the, the legs of the elephant and say, uh, this, this God is like a tree trunk. And, and all of them are piecing together what, what God is like. And I thought about that, and I was like, that's, Super interesting. I've never heard it described that way. But then it hit me. What Jesus is, Jesus is what happens when the elephant starts talking. And the elephant starts to say, this is what God is like. And so we were having this conversation. I say this, and I say this out of kindness and out of, out of humility. And it's, we're all striving to understand what God is like in this world. And what Jesus does is he says all of these endeavors that humanity goes on to try to to reach God, to try to reach heaven, Jesus is the revelation of what God is like. And all of a sudden, all of these religious quests that the world goes on starts to make sense because Jesus is revealing to us the heart of God. Some of the early followers of Jesus started to understand what Jesus is doing in this world. And one of the writers, the Apostle Paul, has this uh, beautiful, uh, it could be a poem, it could be a song, description of what Jesus is in this world. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 says this. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy." For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him, and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so as Peter, the disciples, come to this place of Caesarea Philippi, where there's great sacrifices made for these religious practices, and there's this oppressive religious order that controls the people. There's this declaration that Jesus is Christ, Messiah. Jesus, for us, reveals who God is. And it's no longer about this striving and working towards trying to get to heaven. It's now about what God has done in this world through Jesus. Jesus reveals to us the heart of the Father. The second thing of the story is the opinions about Jesus. The opinions about Jesus. She says, what are people saying about me? And the disciples respond by saying, well, some think that you are John the Baptist. Others think that you are Elijah. Others think that you are these prophets. And, and as I read that, like, I, I've kind of been taught, like, 
Oh, well, you know, they're, they're completely, this is like an insult to Jesus, right? He would have been offended by this. But as you start to understand these, this list of people that the disciples are saying, that people are saying Jesus is like, when you understand their story, what you find is that they're, they're associating Jesus with kind of these heroes of the day. John the Baptist, uh, they, they didn't really have a celebrity culture in this day, but John the Baptist was this the celebrity, his message was radical. His personality was magnetic. People are coming from everywhere to see John the Baptist. John the Baptist is speaking into culture in a way that is, has this, this authority. And, and when you look at like the political structure of, of the day that, that John the Baptist is alive, you, you, have, you have Herod, who's, uh, he, who's kind of like this, uh, he's kind of crazy, to be honest. He's a and he's, he's doing all these things that are just, just strange. He ends up killing his brother and, and taking his wife. There's this weird story. I think TMZ showed up. And, uh, and John the Baptist is there, and he's calling out the authorities and saying, you guys are corrupt and oppressive, to the point that he ends up basically being murdered because of it. And so to associate Jesus with John the Baptist is to say, this guy has authority too. That would have been a compliment. And then Elijah, when you, when you hear the story of Elijah, this was like for, uh, for the Jewish people, this is their Captain America. This is this, this prophet from, from days of old when, when uh, uh, there, there were uh, all sorts of, uh, I don't know, oppressive religious systems coming into their culture. And there's this, this story in the Old Testament of this, this prophet named Elijah where there's this showdown between him and 400 prophets from Baal. And Elijah calls down fire from heaven. There's this insane story that it's like, it's like superpower, something. But God responds to Elijah, and this amazing thing happens. Elijah is thought of as this figure that is like a superhero for these people. And people are saying, maybe, maybe Jesus is, is like Elijah. So what we find is these opinions about Jesus... They're actually these very complimentary statements. They think very highly of who Jesus is. And then Peter responds and says, but I think, I think you're more than that, Jesus. Like those, those things are, are great and, and those would be very complimentary, but then he says, I think you're even more than that. And what we find is that Jesus is better than we imagine. Jesus is better than we imagine. And I think Peter, who had spent time with Jesus, who had started to see what Jesus was doing as he had walked the earth and had interacted with, with people like lepers who nobody else would interact with. And he had, uh, had done miracles uh, to feed people who were hungry, to heal people who were sick. He starts to see what Jesus is doing and he's realizing that there's something more going on here with Jesus. He's even better than what the opinions are about him. And I have found that true in my life as well. Jesus is better than what I imagined. And I, I have all sorts of preconceived ideas of, of who Jesus is and how he works in this world. But I find that he's always bigger and better than what I anticipate. He's always surprising us in a way that we don't expect. He's always bigger than the box that I put him in. As the followers of Jesus tried to understand what Jesus is up to in this world, there's, uh, there's this discussion after, after Jesus leaves and the church is forming, and they're trying to decide uh, 
what does this message mean for Gentiles, for those who are outside of this covenant family? And there's this, this uh, discussion that happens in Galatians where the Apostle Paul starts to say, this Jesus, this Jesus that, uh, that we're following is, is bigger than what we expected. And he uses this phrase that he says that in Christ, we're spiritual heirs to Abraham. And this family of God has expanded even for the Gentiles. It would have been this mind-blowing, Jesus is bigger than what we expected moment. And when this happens in, when this happens in Galatians, or uh, in Ephesians, they're talking about this idea of Jesus being better than we imagine. And Paul says, and I pray that you, in chapter 3 of Ephesians, I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know that this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we uh, all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work in us, to him be the glory. Paul's talking about this idea of this cosmic Christ. He's bigger and better than what we've ever imagined. His hope is that we can grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ, this thing that surpasses knowledge. For Peter, he starts to tap into this idea that Jesus is great like Elijah and John the Baptist, but there's even something more going on here. So finally, Peter's response, he says that he calls Jesus is the Christ, which is a Greek word for Messiah. Some translations just say Messiah, which is, uh, which is the Hebrew word. But they both mean anointed one. For Peter to say this was a big deal because the Jewish people, when you look at their story, when they look at your, their covenant they have with God, they're this covenant people who, uh, through, through their own doing, have broken covenant with God. And so when you follow this story, what you find is that uh, the Jewish people who are given this land, you have the Assyrians come in, the Syrians come in and they conquer them and they take them out, take out 10 of the tribes and they're oppressing them. And then after that, you've got the Babylonians who come in and, and God's people are sent to exile. And then you have the Persians and then you have the Greeks and then you have the Romans. And so you have this constant oppression from these worldly empires and the people of God are crying out. And the prophets start talking about this idea that God is going to intervene on behalf of them. There's this Messiah figure, this anointed one that's going to come and he's going to set them free from all the things that oppress them. And there's this anticipation that this Messiah figure would come and he would just change everything. And this anticipation is what Peter says, this is who I think Jesus is. God's anointed has come. God says anointed has come to set us free. And again, what we find is that Jesus brings freedom. This freedom comes from uh, so much more than just the physical things on earth that oppress us. This freedom that comes through this Messiah also sets us free from the spiritual bondage that we live in. 
This cosmic Christ comes as a savior and sets us free. So Jesus is where we place our hope. For the Jewish people, they have this hope in this Messiah to come. And for us, we have this hope that through Jesus, all of the brokenness of this world is getting put back together. All of the things that oppress us, that have conquered us, that have, uh, that have kept us uh, in terrible systems are shattered by the cross as Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus is where we place our hope. He's better than we imagine. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In Romans chapter 5, there's this uh, beautiful description of of what God's doing in the world through Jesus. And uh, just read through this kind of chunk of scripture and and just listen as, as Paul's describing what God is up to. He says, And hope does not put us to shame. We place our hope in Christ. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though uh, for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, talking about Adam and Eve, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sin. He starts to talk about this gift. He says, the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ? He talks about this idea how sin and brokenness enters the world through the story of Adam and Eve when Adam takes the tomato and eats it, and this, this, this brokenness enters into this story, and all of us are affected. And then there's Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, who reverses what happens to Adam, and how the act of Adam and Eve infects all of us. Jesus, Jesus brings about the restoration and healing for all of us. Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, our Savior. I want to close with a story about one of my favorite theologians. His name's Karl Barth. Some of you heard, heard me tell this story because it's one of my favorites. But Karl Barth, you always know, this is a seminary joke. If you know anything about theology, you pronounce this as Karl Barth, not Karl Barth. So that's a, uh, <clears throat> that was free of charge, little tip. Um, Karl Barth, this great, great theologian um, in the 1900s, dealt a lot with, uh, he's over in Europe with theology and how it's practiced in Europe with the rise of Nazi Germany. Fascinating theologian. Um, Comes over to the U.S. and has written a number of books. And he's, towards the end of his career, he's teaching at this prestigious seminary in Chicago. And 
The students are asking him, of all the things that you've studied, of all the things that you've learned, of all the things that you know, if you could, could just kind of compress that, because we're Americans, we like to have like the summary. If you could like compress that into just a quick kind of vision statement for, for what, what your theology is or, or mission statement, what would it be? So Karl Barth goes, oh, I've never been asked that before. That's a good question. It's a big question. Let me think about that. And as he's thinking, the students pull out their pens and they're getting ready to write down these words of wisdom from Karl Barth. And Karl Barth says, if I could compress everything I've learned through my whole life about theology into just one sentence, this is what it would be. And he says, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. That was it. This cosmic Christ that's bigger than what we imagine, this Savior of the world who's come to break chains of everything that oppresses humanity, loves us so much that he desires relationship with us. And so as we take this question that Jesus asked and we turn it towards us, the question today is, what about you? Who do you say that I am? How do you answer that question about Jesus? Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that I am? Maybe for you, uh, you've never considered uh, the implications that this is the Son of God. And you've known this is a great person, it's this great moral teacher. But you've never had this deeper understanding what relationship with, looks like with Christ, what uh, his lordship looks like in your life. We have all sorts of names of, of how we come into relationship with Jesus, but it starts with this proclamation of saying that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. Maybe you've never made that statement today. And we just encourage you uh, to explore it. Maybe it's a, an experience where you just need to come and just surrender and you, you know, like the way of religion, you've been striving your whole life. And you just need to receive the grace that's offered by God through Christ. Okay. As we go to communion today, let us contemplate this question. Who do you say that Jesus is? And also let us contemplate that as a community. Who do we say that Christ is? What does it mean for us as a church to proclaim it? As we go to communion, communion represents, Matt, if you want to come up here, the communion represents uh, the story of Jesus, this God who loved us so much that he came down in the form of a human and he broke his body open and he poured his blood out on the cross. And through that breaking open of his body and the pouring out of his blood, he brings about healing and restoration through absorbing the consequences of the brokenness and for conquering death we experience resurrection as you go to the communion today be reminded of this and proclaim it and if you've never contemplated Jesus as Christ and you would like to just chat about that we'd love to have the conversation with you David will be standing in the back um, he's much uh, older and wiser than I am. He'd love to chat with you about what that looks like to have a relationship with Christ. 
Let's go to communion and uh, just open up our hearts and souls for Christ to speak to us. Lord, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for this question, Lord, that has huge implications. Lord, I just pray that you would stir in our hearts right now, that we would reflect on what we believe about you. Because we know that what we believe about you affects how we live in this world. We know that what we believe about you has eternal implications. Lord, we pray that you would surprise us today in ways that remind us and, and show us that you're better than we ever imagined. And Lord, we pray that we would just give our hearts to you. In your son's name we pray.